I just wrote this talk about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> so I'm as curious as you probably are as to what's going to happen. Um, I'm not used to... Um, I usually teach a Dharma class once a week and teach various contexts back in Los Angeles, but to uh, have to prepare and write a one-hour Dharma talk uh, this many days in a row is um, a lot more demanding than I perhaps thought. <laughs> and I also know from years of sitting retreats that sometimes the Dharma talk is the only hope of the day. <laughs> Like, man, that fucking dude better say something good. Yeah. So the pressure sometimes is on. But I feel confident and feel um, that we've been following a sequence. So the, the retreat has really tried to follow a sequence. Uh, the practices that we've done in the morning, the mindfulness practices and the heart practices and the evening talks have been uh, hopefully uh, unfolding into a, a shift for all of us, a shift in the way, that we, um, the way that we hold experience, the way that we view experience. And so tonight uh, the talk is called The New Paradigm. And it's a really about this cultivation of what's called right view. And right view is, in the schema of the Buddhist liberation process, right view is the beginning of the Eightfold Path. It's the beginning of the Fourth Noble Truth. And it's really the medicine, it's the antidote, it's the way in which we live that will put an end to suffering and also will allow us to arrive into an experience, and, and hopefully I feel very strongly, to arrive into a life that has meaning for us, and a life where we can come into some truth or coming to some experience of our own authenticity, about being true to yourself, And really, I believe that right view and the talk that I want to offer this evening is about how do we live into our own freedom. And to not see this freedom so much as a destination that hopefully we'll get to. So the freedom isn't out there and we're trying to catch up to it or try to get into it, but we're actually trying to slow down enough that we can drop into our own freedom, which is available right now. And so how do we establish this right view? There's a lot of ways to talk about right view. There's, um, it's sometimes called right understanding or wise understanding or wise view, skillful view. It's a lot of times has to do with actually our worldview, how we view the world. <laughs> there's, that, there's that too. I forgot about that. This guy last year, every Dharma talk. <laughs> it's 
sounds like he's saying, fuck you to me. <laughs> Mara is in the building in the form of a little gecko. And to some degree, we could say on a very... One of the things that I try to not say in a meditation or as a teacher, one thing I try not to say, and I do say it once in a while because I feel like I slip up and say it, is I try not to say present moment. And I see all these Facebook posts and all these things about living in the present moment. Just be in the present moment. And I don't believe that there's any such thing as a present moment. I spent 22 years looking for it. I'm pretty sure it's not actually there. So I don't like it when people ask me to do things that are completely and totally impossible. So what is this idea then pointing us to when we're trying to say to be in the present moment? What I really believe is what we're trying to do is we're trying to arrive into the right view. And how are we seeing experience? How is the appearance of experience? Because my relationship to what's happening in this particular moment, dare I say, uh, says everything about how I relate to life and how I relate to experience and how I hold experience. And one of the things I think that we suffer about most in the modern world, which also denotes to me again the problematic nature of a present moment, is how much we're stressed out by time. Got to be on time. Got to have enough time. I don't have enough time. Busy lives. I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't have enough of time. I, when people say that, I just go, wow. Yeah, I just don't have enough of time when time is literally all you actually do have. And we're always fighting this idea of time. And when we start to meditate and we start to really turn our awareness towards what's happening, we see that time is actually just impermanence itself. Time is just change. What's different right now between the, the first time we walked into this room on Saturday night? What's different between right now and then? The only thing that's different is things have changed. Same room, same people, same building. Things are different now for you, I'm sure, and I hope. Things have changed. And of course we chop it up into days and minutes and seconds and years and uh, how old we are affects our worldview and how we see things. But really what we're really sitting with is the reality of just time and change. And the practice that I asked you to do this morning is to be with experience, is to be with change. And I think when we can really taste what this is like, a tremendous amount of freedom can arise from that. And a tremendous, oftentimes, a tremendous sense of, oh, I've been going about this thing all wrong. 
and going about things all backwards. Because I'm always racing against time to do the next thing, the next event of my life. And I feel like my life is on this, uh, like a tape delay, slap back, where there's what's happening now, and my mind is constantly preoccupied and constantly living into what's happening next. And so then I'm going to do this, and then after I do that, and I, whatever I'm doing, I think about what I'm doing next, and I think about what I'm doing next, and I think about what I'm doing next. And meanwhile, I'm missing out on all of the experiences that I'm having because I'm hooked into this. I've got to get somewhere. I've got to be somebody. I've got to do something. I've got to make meaning of this. I have to accomplish. I have to be better than I am. In right view is asking us to question all of this constructs and ideas that we, all of the conditioning that we have been born into. One of the things that I learned in the many hours and time I've done working with a, with a trauma therapist, a very skilled trauma therapist back in the States that I'm really grateful to having done some work with, is it turns out, actually, that all of the tragic and really what I would outline as the most horrific events of my life and the things that were most upsetting and the sort of traumatic milestones that I've had turned out to be actually the things that I'm most grateful for because they put me in a place of questioning things in a very much deeper way. And so again, we're back to the theme of the paradox of the, the beauty and the tragedy that often what arises out of tragic events and what arises out of the pain and the difficulty and the suffering of life is it forces us to look at things a little bit more differently. And I, I learned from a very early age in my early life that from a very young age, from really I would say 9, 10, 11, I was already questioning everything that I was being told. Mostly I was told that I was a pain in the ass and that I had a bad attitude <laughs> by the authority figures in my life. And I've had a problem with authority figures since I can remember. And I still don't particularly care for them. I've had this really deep sense of questioning things of, well, somebody would say, well, it's like this, or it's like that, or you have to do this because this is how it is. And I always say, well, how come? I don't understand why, why that is. And I didn't trust my parents, and I didn't trust society, and my family wasn't religious. I didn't have the religious thing so much, but I, I thought that that didn't make very much sense to me. My dad worked all the time. That didn't make very much sense to me. I hated school. That didn't, that didn't make very much I just wanted to play and have fun. I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And so I, I really feel like I've been a seeker of something really for quite some time now. Looking, questioning, being confused being unsure, being uh, suspicious, knowing 
and knowing that there, there, there's got to be another way here. There's, something's just not quite right. It's like uh, Neo in the Matrix. It's like, man, this is something funky going on here. If you know this movie, The Matrix, it's a very Dharma movie, actually. <laughs> and then, you know, going through the events that I was telling you about the first night, the, a lot of the death and the loss and the confusion of, of teenage years, and then coming into contact with the Dharma and getting this tremendous sense of, oh, thank God, somebody has some clue of how it is. And so I, you know, ask you as you sit there to reflect on your experience and to see how much of this has been true for you. At what point did you start asking different types of questions? At what point did you notice, hmm, something here is just not quite right. This isn't adding up. I feel like what the world is telling me, what my society, what my culture, what my parents is telling me is just not really lining up with how I feel. And, you know, ironically, in the, in the classical story, in the, the biography of the Buddha, as he went through the same thing. The teen angst, the existential crisis, the what's it all for? What is this life for? Why... Are we just here to work, get old, and die? That doesn't sound good to me. And so a lot of times we've been plagued or we feel like we've been suffering or we feel like maybe have been an outsider my whole life. I felt like an outsider. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I didn't belong in school. <clears throat> I tried being in bands, which is the only place that I felt like I belonged. I needed to. I always felt a little bit like a, I didn't fit in. And now I'm realizing I'm feeling so much gratitude and appreciation for the fact that this has been in place for so long because if it wasn't for that kind of questioning and that kind of confusion, I would have never, ever been able to actually find the willingness or the strength or really the courage to just sit here and look at my mind and be like, all right, it's, my problem really is not what's going on out there. What I'm looking for is really not going on out there. And I'm just going to sit here and face my mind. And I'm going to sort this thing out. I'm going to work this out. Which is really what, what the Buddha did. Is he, he developed this whole system that we've been practicing. A whole psychological System. I, I call it a spiritual technology. The Dharma is a spiritual technology. It's a whole mode of operating, a whole system for how we can actually have a, a meaningful life and to how we can learn to live into our freedom. And what, my, what it means for me to live in my freedom is probably different than what it means for you. And so when we look at the teachings that we've been sitting with and the practices we've been doing is the Buddha very generously and very articulately left us a highly detailed map of how to find what he often calls an ancient city 
that when, within all of us is this ancient city that we want to recover and we want to inhabit and we want to live in. And the trick for all of us is even though we all can follow the same map, we find that our territories are really quite different. And that we're all actually really quite unique in our struggle. And there's definitely some certain themes. We all know the experience of vulnerability. We all know the experience of greed, hatred, and delusion, of not feeling worthy, of feeling different than. We all have the same software. But how we rewrite that software and how we develop a system for ourselves is really quite different. So when you go to a city and you have a map, when you go to a city, if you go to Chiang Mai, you've never been to Chiang Mai, they give you a map and it has all the streets and some of the restaurants and where to go on it. But the map doesn't have a lot of other things. The map doesn't have the fact that you, might, that you don't know Thai and that might be problematic. You might not know the language. It doesn't have traffic. It doesn't have temperature. It doesn't have those kinds of things. So when we start to develop the spiritual technology that we see in the Dharma, we see that we need to find our way through our own confusion and our own emotional territory. And what is the heart practices that I need so much? You know, I was talking to somebody today about the heart practice, somebody who had a very overwhelming experience with a gratitude and appreciation and sort of didn't see that coming. A lot of times we come in here and we think, oh, forgiveness is the work that I need to do. I really need to forgive. And we, we struggle with that practice. But then we do a, a meta practice or we do a mudita practice and we see that that gets us in touch with our heart. So we don't always know which is going to be the practice or which is going to be the experience that's going to blow the whole thing wide open. And so to some degree, we're being asked to, to, to take refuge or we're being asked to trust or to try it out. Again, the teachings are all ahipasako. Come and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't trust anybody. And it was very important for me to hear this message that the Buddha gave when he was giving one of his teachings to the Kalamas, the Kalama Sutta it's known as. And he's in the city and he's giving a Dharma talk to the people in the public square and everybody's coming and listening to hear the Buddha. And it's a place where probably lots of different spiritual teachings were given and from different traditions and so forth. And somebody asked a question to the Buddha. They say, we have all, every week we have somebody different come through here <coughs> saying this, that, and the other thing. Why should we believe what you say? And the Buddha said, you totally shouldn't believe what I say. You shouldn't believe what anybody says. You shouldn't believe it until you know it to be true for yourself. And then when you know it for yourself to be true, then you can trust that it's trustworthy because you know. And it's so much fun for me to do the interviews because so many of you today had these, some form of an experience where you knew something in a way much different than any other experience maybe you had. You just knew. And so you, you started to, to taste 
or started to experience the reality of right view, of seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. And waking up. Holy shit, it really, things really are changing. Oh my God, I really fucking do appreciate myself. I had no idea. I really care about myself. I did not know that. I wanted to. I thought it was a good idea. And then I tasted that experience. And now I know. And this is the type of, this is the type of knowing, the wisdom of that. It's a very embodied knowing down, like you know something in your bones knowing. Not an intellectual understanding, but an emotional, spiritual, deep, deep knowing where you cannot be convinced otherwise by anybody. Knowing. And I've had many of these, and I'm so grateful that I've had many of these little dharma hits along the way that have kept me, even when I got off of the path and I, and I lost my right view, I always had this knowing, even in some of the experiences when I was really caught in my addiction and I was living in a way that I knew was not really right and didn't feel good and I was engaging in behaviors and doing things that I felt regret and shame about. I still, in the back of my mind, always knew that there was this other way about doing things. And so I, I, I sit here in front of you as somebody who has completely and totally, miserably failed at the practice so many times. And something about the flavor of the Dharma, something about the freedom that I tasted at one point in my life was strong enough that I could readjust when I needed to and I could readjust when I needed to. And I have had to readjust so many times. And so whether it's just the readjustment of sitting here and bringing your attention back to the breath and bringing yourself back type of an adjustment or some of the major adjustments in our life where we make the big scary choices of giving up a career that we thought we wanted or ending a relationship that we thought we needed to have. or We start to live into our own freedom and we start to have the confidence to sort of say to ourselves, it's liberation or bust at this point. I am all in. And I cannot be talked out of what I know to be true. And if that means that I have to make hard choices and let people down. and When you start to get into Dharma, uh, some of the people in your lives might think you're kind of losing it a little bit. <laughs> and I'll say more about this on Saturday, but you have to be careful when you go back out there and talk about your retreat. Because it sounds weird to people who don't understand this kind of practice. You're like, oh, I was in Chiang Mai, and we were just sitting for days, and I was breathing and listening to the sounds. And I realized that I loved myself, and I started crying. And people are like, dude, you need to fucking get some real help. They're like, dude, they have medication for that. If you explain to an average person what you've been doing here all this week, they would sound like it was like prison. <laughs> yeah, we, didn't, we couldn't talk or look at each other. <laughs> 
It was awesome. You should, you should come next year. So don't tell anybody about the retreat because it will be bad advertising for me. And so what happens, we start to do is we do this process that's called sotopana, which means stream entry, is that we enter a stream. And as we enter the Eightfold Path, as we enter, as we take this on, and we say, okay, this, is, this makes sense to me, this feels like the right thing, we, we enter into a, a type of a stream. <clears throat> and even the Buddha says that this stream goes against the stream, so we... We enter a stream that goes against another stream, which is going to mean that there's going to be some turbulence. So the image of two streams kind of coming together creates a turbulence, a difficulty. And that essentially we're going against this stream of greed, hatred, and delusion. And... When we start to enter the stream or we start to say, this is something that I want to do, again, I want to make a strong encouragement to consider that um, the Dharma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. So it doesn't matter. I know that for many people that I've worked with and many people who come into the Dharma, they oftentimes feel the sense of disappointment of a wish or a, oh, I really wish I'd gotten into this earlier. Especially a lot of the people that I work with who've struggled with addiction, who have tried different ways of recovering and have maybe had multiple failures. And many people who struggle with addiction find that they, they don't get it on the first try. And there sometimes can be a, a sadness or a disappointment because they might feel like, or we might feel like we have to make up for lost time. But this again is a wrong view. This is not necessarily how it is. Because when we talk about entering a stream or entering a path, entering an eightfold path, entering a way of life that actually leads somewhere, that as long as you are on the path, as long as you're heading in the right direction, you will arrive at your destination. And so whether you started 20 years ago or whether you started you know, last Saturday, it's pretty irrelevant. And so we might want to try to find a sense of confidence around that, of like, okay, like, whew, at least I've made it. At least I've landed in some kind of practice or some kind of perspective that at least makes sense at this point. And we start to really try to understand this mind and respect this mind for what this mind can do. You've been sitting uh, a couple days ago. Much of the report was like, I can't tell you how many I heard you actually say verbatim, my mind is crazy. Many of you said that just the other day. You said, almost as if you were going to shock me. Like, actually, my mind is crazy. It's insane. Bonkers. And waking up to that reality. And saying, okay, well, if that's the case, 
That means there's a tremendous amount of influence I have over how this mind gets shaped moving forward. And one of the ways the Buddha talks about his mental training or his mindfulness practice, he says, just as a skilled wood turner shapes a piece of wood and carves a spoon or a sculpture, just as a skilled wood person shapes the wood in the right way, just as a, a, a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a sculptor sculpts a piece of art, he says the meditator shapes the mind. And that we train the mind and that we, we carve it and we work with it and we, we get it just exactly the, the way we would like it. And so we have tremendous influence over the mind. And that over time and through practices and through cultivating the Eightfold Path, we start to arrive into a mind and live into a mind that feels free. We start to live into our own, our own freedom. And the experience that we're in feels like an experience that we want to be in. And it happens slowly. It's like, again, I talked about this on the first night. It's a gradual cultivation. But it was started by this sudden awakening, this sudden sense of, oh, there's got to be a better there. And so the Eightfold Path is broken down into three categories or three trainings that we develop called Sila Samadhi Panya. And Sila is about, after we cultivate the right view, is about actually about ethical behavior. It's about the precepts that we took the other night. It's about not causing harm. And so the reason the Dharma is good in the beginning is because as we enter the stream, as we start to take on the practices of right speech and being careful and wise and honest and authentic with our speech and careful and wise and authentic with our actions and also with our livelihood, with the way that we live in the world and how we make money. That we start to, you can start that right away. Many of you probably already have. And that there's the freedom of the heart that comes when we live a life of blamelessness. Right. I know that for me, having spent periods of time in my life where I was harming myself mostly, but also harming other people and being dishonest and stealing and selling drugs and engaging in things that I regretted and felt shamed about later, that when I sit in meditation now, I almost can't even, I can't tell you the last time I did anything intentional to hurt somebody. I can't even remember. It's been so long ago. And of course, that makes the meditation practice much more peaceful when I can sit with myself and feel good about how I'm living. I have it tattooed on my knuckles, this word sila. It means ethics. It means to essentially to not cause harm. And if we look at the world and we start to look at all of the harm that's caused and if we really dare take a look at the global landscape and the human realm, 
It can be very overwhelmingly disappointing to see that greed, hatred, and delusion are alive and well. And they are running rampant through the human realm. And the harm that gets caused, the harm that we've experienced, that we take on this practice of this, we take on this really radical stance of saying, actually, not only am I not going to cause harm, but I'm actually going to create and promote positive change in the world by becoming a person who lives from a place of nonviolence. Nonviolence in my own mind, nonviolence in my own intentions, nonviolence in my own speech and my own actions. I am a person, I am a being, I am a mind that no longer creates harm. And the freedom of heart that comes with that. And becoming that for somebody else in the world who is suffering. And this is not something that you need to be a masterful meditator. You don't need to be an empowered Buddhist teacher. You don't need to be a monk. You don't need to be a nun. All you need to do is start right now. In your own mind forgiving yourself, having compassion for yourself, being kind with yourself. It starts right in your own mind, the sila. And this word sila also means to drink in. Almost as if we are drinking from a different kind of well. And we get glimpses of it when we do the practices, when we do heart practices, or whether when we do mindfulness, we start to see. We start to see that there's a deep intention, there's a deep desire we have that we actually don't want to cause ourselves harm. This Darwin concept that says that we are hardwired for sympathy. And sometimes it gets covered up, it gets buried by confusion, by anger, by hurt, by pain. The world has shown us and we've been conditioned to think that this desire to not cause harm or this desire to care about ourselves is scary or dangerous or weak. And now we, we start to see, actually, no, that's not the case. Actually, now I'm taking on this practice of sila. And, and the goodness that comes from that, the Dharma is good in the beginning because this is something that you can just start doing right away. You don't have to. It's not a destination that you get to. It's just a way of being. And then the Dharma is good in the middle because we start practicing meditation. So once we take on these ethic, this ethical lifestyle that's not causing harm, wanting to be a... a positive agent in the world, a creator of harmony and peace and of kindness. That now we're developing a samadhi, meditation. The more that we do that, now we're meditating more. And as I sit in my experience, as I was saying, my meditations are so much more at ease now because I don't feel bad about anything that I did. I have the experience, the benefit of blamelessness. Forgiveness practice seems almost irrelevant to me sometimes because I have nothing to forgive myself for. 
I haven't done anything in, in all in the recent past that I could even consider that I would need to forgive myself for. I don't have to ask for forgiveness because I can't remember the last time I hurt somebody. I find the one that I probably need to do the most of is offer forgiveness because people continue to piss me off. That seems to not have changed a whole lot. And it's good in the middle. We sit these retreats. We practice mindfulness. We start to see that, that our view changes. We start to live into our own freedom and see, oh, there's a better way about this. Maybe we make hard changes. We, we start to see what's actually really important. And again, when we start to see what's really important, we start to understand more and more and more that my happiness is about the quality of my awareness. And it's not out there somewhere and I have to go get it. It's such a radical shift in paradigm, isn't it? My happiness is not dependent upon external conditions. It's not. It's such a relief. I just I feel just calmed down by just having this idea in my head. It's not, I don't have to go find it. I don't have to go get it. And when we practice long enough and really start to not just understand this intellectually and go, okay, that makes sense, I guess. But really actually start to see that the quality of my awareness, the quality of my own heart, mind, what I what I look through every day. Every day I look through my mind's eye, I look through my emotional eye, I look through the world through the quality of my own heart and mind. And as my heart and mind feel more at ease and more kind and more compassionate and more loving, I experience the world in exactly the same way. Because there really is no out there. There's no out there, there's just what arises and passes and arises and passes. And because we have this contraption called memory, we can collect experiences knowing that things have happened in the past, therefore we can deduce that things will happen in the future. But we're trapped in this, dare I say, present moment. You're stuck here. You can't go back there and you can't go forward. All you have is the quality of your awareness. That's literally all you have. And if you change that, if you shape that, if you tame that, if you train that, everything else has to change. And so when we look at these factors of, of samadhi, of mental training, the middle factors of the Eightfold Path, we have effort. We put in the effort. We, we, we incline our energy, our life, and our energy towards this awareness. And the amount of effort that you put into your practice this week, there will, people, there will be many people who will live an entire lifetime and never put the effort into their own experience that you did in these seven days. 
thousands, thousands of moments of right effort, of coming back, of being diligent, of trying to tease out these heart practices that sometimes feel impossible. And it's also said, I don't know where, but I, and I don't know if it's true, but I like it, so I'm going to repeat it. The Buddha said that it is better to have had one moment of mindfulness than to have lived a hundred lifetimes asleep. And so we get these awakening moments. We get these moments where we wake up to the way things are. And if we look at the world and we look at the delusion and the suffering, most people will live an entire life, many, many people will live an entire life and never have experienced any of the little moments of awakening that you had this week, the moments of appreciation you had for yourself, or even just that moment or that sit where things were, they were just right. And we, we overlooked that as if it was just, yeah, well, whatever, I sat all day and I had seven minutes of freedom, big deal. <laughs> it seems unfair. And what arises out of the sila and the samadhi, the ethics, the non-harming, the meditation, the awareness, as we arrive into what we wanted from the beginning, but I don't, I don't make up the order of these things, is the wisdom, the understanding, the seeing clearly. The right view. Right view is the beginning of the path and is the end of the path. And when we start to go back to the idea where we started in the first night, where we take, we take refuge... Refuge is because I have a, we have a, a whole movement around recovery called Refuge Recovery. Uh, refuge has always been a word that has been very sentimental to me, but now even more so because um, the idea of taking refuge in these triple gems, that refuge is something that is safe, something that is available, something that is trustworthy, something that is always there, something that has always been there. It's something that we can put our heart on and go, my heart is going to be safe here. And there's two ways that the Buddha talks about refuge in, in the teachings. And one of them, and the most common one, is the idea of taking refuge. So the idea of turning it over, turning our awareness over to our potential to wake up and saying that I have this capacity, <coughs> not taking refuge in the statue behind me, but taking refuge in your own potential for liberation, that you have everything that you need inside of you, you just need to unlock it. Totally doable. Millions and millions of people have done it before. There's no reason why you can't do it. And so we, he talks about taking refuge in these things. 
But then he also says, and the thing that I really like that has been my experience in the last couple of years because I've been teaching so much, and most of my time is sitting with people who aren't doing so well. And he says that once we start to cultivate this eightfold path and we start to develop this uh, ethics and meditation and wisdom is we become a refuge for somebody else. We get to have the good fortune of being the person that somebody else can actually turn towards now because they know that they know that you aren't going to harm them. And they know that you are trustworthy. And there's a very strong, contagious nature to this. In fact, there's a lot of research now along these things called motor, or I'm sorry, mirror neurons, which is how we emotionally connect with, that, with each other, how we co-regulate and how human beings interact with each other. And that when we see something, we see something familiar in somebody else, we feel relaxed, we feel at ease. And you've seen this in people, I'm sure. People that, we've, that have been our benefactors, people that have been our counselors or therapists or sponsors or f- just friends. And it was just an article that I just read recently, that, a study that was done at Harvard that talked about how we judge people. And the study suggested, and it stated that when we come into contact with a human being, the first thing that happens for us, the first judgment or the first assessment that makes, and this happens on a very micro level, so we actually happens to some degree subconsciously, we immediately assess whether this person is safe or not. Just right away, the motor neurons, something deep in our emotional system, just kind of the first thing we assess when we come into contact with somebody is, is this person safe? And the second thing that happens, if the person is safe, we ask the second question is, can I respect this person? And if those two neurons fire, we will usually engage with the person and we'll usually relax. We'll relax, we'll engage, we'll make eye contact, and we'll think, oh, this, this person is not going to harm me and maybe this person has something interesting to say. And this happens so fast that we, we actually don't know that this is happening. This is what the study suggested. It's just a, a way in which our organism scans other organisms for connection. And so I, I've noticed over the years that as the quality of my awareness has improved, the quality of the people that I attract and the quality of people that I'm attracted to has also greatly improved. Almost like it's been magic or something. You know, I'm not, I'm not from Los Angeles. I never lived in Los Angeles. I have no family in Los Angeles. 
But for some reason, everybody that I really seem to love on a very deep level all live in Los Angeles. And I don't think that's because Los Angeles is full of lovable people. But because I've been going to Los Angeles for so many years and doing training with Against the Stream and meeting a lot of people in Against the Stream and different people in the Sangha that I have, um, as the quality of my awareness and my skill level and my training has improved and gotten to be more available to me, that I find that these are the people that I draw in and these are the people that I seek. And I used to hang out with some not-so-safe people back in the day. And even the Buddha says, um, even before we develop this right view, he talks about right association. And so when we look at taking refuge, we take refuge, of course, in, in our own potential to wake up. And we take refuge in the Dharma. We've been taking refuge in these practices and trusting, for some insane reason, trusting that if I come back to my breath, it might actually do me some good. If I come back to my body, if I come back to sound, all of the instructions is that you had, you've, you've trusted that, haven't you? You wouldn't still be here. You would not have lasted six whole days. There's no way. So you've, you've taken this refuge, probably at times reluctantly, with some apprehension, which is actually good. The Buddha said, be apprehensive. Don't trust me. Try it out. See for yourself. And then this right association is about uh, the Sangha, community. And really on a basic level, it's just about finding other human beings who share the same view that you do. And this, I think, is a great, great challenge for many of us. It's been a really great challenge for me because sometimes the Dharma road can get a little lonely. Because there are so many people who have dust in their eyes and there are so many people who might just think that you're a kook for having come here and done this. But I notice over the years that I've actually, I've lost a lot of people. A lot of people that were important to me at one time. I've lost a lot of people to addiction. A lot of people I know have died. I've lost a lot of friends who just were kind of like, yeah, Dave's just getting way out there. And so we, it behooves us and it should be an encouragement to us to seek out people who are also interested in what we're interested in and associating with the wise. And the Buddha even says that the two things that are conducive, the two factors that are most conducive for liberation is the uh, association with the wise so uh, being around wise people being around practicing people even if they're not Buddhists being around people who have ethics and who have integrity and who are not going to harm you and who are not going to manipulate you and take advantage of you who are going to care about you and who are going to let you care about them 
He says the two factors that are conducive are association with the wise. In this term, he uses yanasomenasakaro, which means wise attention, which is the training of the mind. This faculty of the mind that you're all probably so painfully familiar with, attention, developing wise attention, paying attention to that, putting your attention, putting your mind and your heart on that which is worthy. And whatever you put your attention on is what you're taking refuge on in each and every single moment of your life. And so that wise attention, being skillful and careful where we put our mind and who we spend our time with. And one of the things I think that we... um, It's a very great time in the world, I think, for the Dharma... Because of, first of all, I think because of the internet and because of the global, I mean, there's people, it it blows me away, this retreat, because so many of you are from so many different places. This is actually an international retreat. It blows my mind to how many, what a wide range of people there are from around the world. This isn't just, you know, very uh, fascinating to me because of the internet and because of the access we have to information and because of the access we have to really, really great Dharma teachings. There's so many good books and there's so many good teachers available. And really, I think one of the things that I think has been a major contributor to it is the, is the emerging field of mindfulness and mindfulness has become so popular in just mainstream mental health. My mom gets like Mindful Magazine now. I was visiting her. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, your friend Vinny's on the cover. She's all excited. She's like, your friend Vinny's on the cover of Mindful Magazine. I had to get it when I was at Whole Foods. I'm like, my mom's at Whole Foods buying Mindful Magazine. It's like, that's fucking amazing to me because that's not, you know, I didn't grow up like that. I grew up stealing dirt bite magazines at the liquor store with my dad when he was getting a 30 pack that's how I grew up and now my mom and dad are at Whole Foods getting mindful magazine and my dad really likes the organic sausages from Whole Foods so they go there they drive two hours in Colorado because they like to go it's like fucking crazy to me And so we have such a great opportunity now in the state of the world, even though the state of the world is how it is, and we can really, if we're not careful, we can look at the state of the world and really look at it through the lens of a depressive, sort of um, aversive, it's really going to shit attitude. But maybe it's not, actually. Maybe that's just one view. And so when we take on the practice, it's so much more than just actually about us and our lives. And we become, as you come into contact, you become refuge for other people. You'll meet somebody, you'll have a friend. I guarantee you in the next few weeks, most of you, some of you for sure, 
are going to talk to somebody that you know, that you love, that you care about, who's not doing well, and you're going to be like, dude, I went on this retreat. I mean, it mostly sucked, but it was pretty cool too, you know? And you're going to create positive change in the world. You're going to be agents of change. And whether this is your first retreat or many retreats, it doesn't matter because you now carry with you the seed of awakening in your own mind. Not only have you identified the seed of awakening in your own mind, but you're starting to see that it's moving. It's not just a hard little seed anymore. It has a sprout to it. And so as you cultivate this seed of awakening, it will draw, you will draw people in. People notice when we're doing well. When you become kind and friendly, people will want to be in your presence. Have you noticed that you're drawn towards kind and friendly people and that people who are negative and have a bad attitude you kind of want to stay away from a little bit? Have you noticed that? I have. I'm like, oh man. I go into work, I know exactly who I want to talk to and exactly who I do not want to talk to. And so it's not just about ourselves. It's not just this isolated, oftentimes meditation have come to us through this sort of, we sit down, we avoid everything out there, and we just try to create this private, privileged, enlightened experience for ourselves. That's totally not it at all. That the Dharma, we interact, we make an impact on other people. And then we become a refuge for people. We become the safe, respectable person that people are drawn towards. And there are so many uh, communities sprouting up all over the world. There's, there's different Dharma communities and people are getting together and practicing mindfulness. And It's so auspicious and strange to me that uh, a guy from Belgium opened this place because he wanted to have a mindful place for people to come and do recovery. And now this place has turned into so much more than just that. Just one person had one idea. And if that person didn't have that idea and didn't have that intention and didn't set that in motion, none of us would actually be here. And so what started off as probably a, I didn't ever get a chance to meet him, but probably started off as sort of a cockamamie idea about opening a retreat center in rural Thailand. Uh, it happened and it came into fruition. And people from all over the world are able to come here. It's very strange to me that a, you know, whatever I am, a, you know, a recovering American punk rocker, ex-drug addict, traumatized American person has come to Thailand to teach Buddhism feels really insane to me. That, that, that it's actually gone all the way around the world at this point. Literally. Because there's a lot of Buddhist uh, temples and teachers. I think there's a lot of Buddhism in Thailand. <laughs> Why they imported me is a little bit uh, strange. But I think it's just, it's just an emergence to me. It's, it's the, it, it, it speaks to the true 
liberating nature of the Buddha's Dharma. There's no way it would have lasted this long, and there's no way it would have come into the context for people like us if it didn't actually have value. It would have died out. And so as we live in a world of technology and we live in this modern world where there's so much happening, we, we start to see that there's a spiritual technology right inside our own experience that we can start to unlock. And I oftentimes tell people that we think that space is the final frontier, but I actually believe that your inner life is the final frontier. That everything you've been looking for has been sitting right next to you the whole time. And that we start to shift our paradigm. We start to shift the way in which we experience life. We change the attitude that we have about life. And we actually not only improve the quality of our own awareness and the quality of our own life, but we actually improve the quality of awareness in the world. And the the freedom that comes from that and the sense of, of purpose, actually, for me, it's a tremendous sense of purpose. As the Dharma is just it's something that we just start to do. And so we start right now. It's good right now. It's already good. It's already here. You don't lose it. You don't have to find it. It's this, as I said the first night, it's subtle. It's hard to see. It's difficult to awaken to. But it's always right there. And so we try to remind ourselves to get back to the original experience. Just the next, the in-breath, right? It's just right around the next corner. You just have to stop and here it comes and you're back. Just like that, right there. So thank you for your attention this evening.